0: Welcome, everybody, to another redeployment episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II-based podcast. And first and foremost, from everybody here at the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, we want to wish each and every one of you, and hope, I guess at this point, that you had a great Thanksgiving. We were off last week. We're off this week. We're just going to provide one episode to cover both weeks. However, we will be back live on Monday. Jeff will give us a breakdown of his adventures and his sightseeing tour that he went on over the holidays, got some photos, very excited for him, happy to see it. And before we go back to episode 77, which we recorded back on 11-29 at 2020, I just want to invite you guys or make our I just want to make you guys aware of a very cool event that's going on. Sunday, December 3rd, it's History in Hollywood Forum. The World War II Foundation and the Pearl Harbor Aviation Museum presents the captivating free event featuring the stars of HBO's hit series, The Pacific. It's over at 319 Lexington Boulevard, Honolulu, Hawaii. So if you're going to be in Honolulu at that time, hanging out in Hawaii at the beginning of December, head on over and check out the History and Hollywood Forum. And our friend Scott Gibson will be on the panel as as well as a few of the other actors from the series. So check that out. It'll be a good time. And um, we want to thank each and every one of you for your continued support this year. And if you haven't done so, you got maybe, I don't know, what's the date today? The 27th? You got all, I don't know, one, two, three, four, six days to sign up, get registered to win one of the two Pacific prints that we're giving away, provided by our friend Henry Sledge. All you have to do is be an active subscriber to our Patreon, so head over to Patreon.com, look for Digital 410, or go to WTSPWorldWar2.com, click on the support or Patreon link, sign up and subscribe. we got three plans, but you only have to be a member of one, even the lowest one, to be entered as long as you're an active member. When we do the drawing, probably on December, well, let's see, it'd be Monday the 6th we'll do the drawing on our next episode. So Monday the 6th, yeah. Monday the 6th, we will be giving it away. So head on over to WTSPWorldWar2.com and click on that Patreon link and sign up, subscribe, and you'll be entered. And now we're going to go back to episode 77, where Jeff and I discuss Thanksgiving during World War II and what it means to frontline soldiers. Jeff talks about his current prize of his collection. And I sit down with a living historian from here in Florida who does a German impression, Mr. Kevin Crane. So check that out. Thank you guys so much. And we'll be back next week.
1: Digital 410 Productions proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast with your hosts Don Abernathy and Jeff
2: Copsett.
0: Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II-based podcast. As always, we are film, filming. I wish we were filming. We are recording live. I haven't even started drinking my bourbon yet. Uh, we're recording or digitized live here in the At Computer Studio in Cape Coral, Florida. But as always joining us from Texas, our friend Jeff Copsetta. Jeff, how are you, sir?
2: Good, sir. How are you?
0: Good. You know, at some point I need to write down the name of the town. That way I can say joining us from Texas is our friend Jeff Jeff But you know, it's just things are just so so darn crazy. But how is your Thanksgiving going this year, sir?
2: You know, I mean, Every every year for me is it's the best year. So it was the best Thanksgiving. I mean, it was small, but it was personal and it was good, man. I mean, you know, it's it's um, you don't take anything for granted anymore.
0: Isn't that the so, truth. That's you know, that's kind yeah. of the one. If there's a silver lining or a good thing, quote unquote, to come from COVID, at least early on. I don't know. Maybe now we're all jaded again. But at least early on, we all kind of sat back back when we didn't know exactly where this pandemic was going to take us, how severe it was, if we were going to see the casualty numbers that they were originally predicted and we all kind of paused our lives and looked around and said, "Holy crap." And I think a lot of us, at least for a period of time, were a little more grateful for every day we had in our family and and the opportunities we have. but kind of like with anything else as time goes by, we start to fall back in our old ruts and our old system again and I think a lot of those thankfulness may have fallen to the wayside
2: yeah maybe so but we'll enjoy it while it lasts
0: let me ask you a question um i usually drink a beer during these things but i'm kind of trying to watch my empty calories and so i switched over to bourbon (laughs) (laughs) and i know that you uh enjoy a cigar and a drink from time to time what is your liqueur of choice
2: actually i'm a wine guy i got a glass right now i uh I mean, I'll have a good glass of bourbon every now and then. Um, you know, there's a there's a distillery right down the road here that's uh, uh, it was actually the first distillery in Texas, um, and it's just really grown in proportion. And of course, we're right in the heart of wine country. You know, we've talked about that before, but uh, the but, uh, Garrison Brothers is a is a local distillery here, and they do very well They make excellent bourbon. But no, I'm typically I'm typically a wine guy, man. I'm I'm mostly Portuguese, so that's just that's in my blood, I guess.
0: You know, I've been drinking the Maker's Mark for years now. Um, not that I'm a bourbon connoisseur. I did discover um, that a Jim Beam is more of a um, a mixing bourbon, not so much of a sipping bourbon. If you know what I mean, it just kind of right. It doesn't have that taste to <laughs> it. It's just not. A, it's, let's be honest, it's not a good straight bourbon. <laughs> no, no, no hacks towards you, Jim Beam fans. But um, I recently discovered this stuff called Larceny. Huh. It's a small batch, 92 proof, weeded bourbon, bourbon. Which, yes, I know it sounds redundant, but that's actually what they call it. It's a weeded, weeded bourbon, bourbon. And huh. um, I've been enjoying it. It's it's pretty darn good. And yeah. I, my dad brought over some Crown Royal yesterday, but it's like, well, what's the what's the point? I got I got this going on. So uh, <laughs> it's Thanksgiving time, and we had a small little get together here yesterday. We had about eight people, no, well, maybe seven. But I was um. You know, we've all seen, being World War II aficionados, we've all seen the World War II photos of the guys in the front lines and the foxholes, you know, eating a turkey leg and having their mess kits out with the, uh, all the accoutrements. But um, I got to looking around today, I almost like, what do we not know about Thanksgiving and World War II? Did you know that prior to us getting involved in the war, right on the heels of the Great Depression, Roosevelt toyed around and actually changed the date of Thanksgiving for three years. Really? Yes. In the summer of 1939, concerned retailers approached President Franklin Roosevelt. The, that the, This is poorly written, so I'm just reading verbatim. Uh, approached President Franklin Roosevelt, period. The Christmas shopping season had uh, never started before Thanksgiving, but in 1939, Thanksgiving, which had been celebrated on the last Thursday of November since 1863, would land on November 30th, which would curtail revenue. In August of 1939, Roosevelt issued a presidential proclamation changing Thanksgiving to the third Thursday of November. It was hugely unpopular decision. While 32 states adopted, it, adopted the earlier date, 16 refused. In 1939, 40 and 41, two dates were celebrated, depending on the state. The later original date was sometimes nicknamed the Republican Thanksgiving, and the new early date the Democrat Thanksgiving or the Franksgiving, I guess because of Franklin. By 1941, Roosevelt admitted the earlier date had absolutely no effect on retail sales figures. And so on October 6, 1941, the House of Representatives voted to move Thanksgiving back to the last Thursday of November. Uh, the, ascend- the Senate amended the bill on December 9, 1941, despite the previous day's declaration of war on Japan. Now imagine that, <laughs> if you will. <laughs> it's December 9, 1941. Yesterday... He just gave the speech about, you know, being attacked the day that would go down in infamy. And we just, you know, declared war in Japan. But the very next day, let's get back to the serious task that we've all been waiting for on Bated Breath. And that is what day will we celebrate Thanksgiving on? Um, yep. Yeah, so the, so despite that the previous day they declared war in Japan to make the holiday fall on the fourth Thursday to accommodate uh four or five um to accommodate the date. Uh, the president signed the legislation on December 26, nineteen forty-one. Now here's an interesting thing. I'm not gonna read all this verbatim, but I found an interesting chart on here. And it's talking about Macy's Day Parade. Rubber was one of the most critical wartime shortages since 92% of American supply came from Japan. Occupied land, I'm sorry, Japanese occupied land, which I never knew that before. I didn't know that at the time Japan like held 92% of the properties that grew rubber trees. Were you aware of that? Yeah.
2: That's essentially, yes, yeah, essentially the French Indochina uh, Peninsula, or what became Vietnam was uh, and the Philippines. I think that's where most of the rubber for the world comes from, is, is those two locations.
0: And so on November 13, 1942, Macy's Department Store ceremoniously handed over their famous giant rubber balloons used in the annual parades, including Superman, who had only made his debut in 1939. The balloons were shredded for scrap rubber. But here's the interesting thing. They have a little cute little chart here. A gas mask required 1.1 pounds of rubber. yeah not too bad, because most of that's a canister. A life raft required 17 to 100 pounds of rubber. I guess it depends on the type of rubber and the thickness. The scout car required, I guess, for um, tires and, uh, I don't know, maybe hoses and things like that. 300- 300. Hoses, yeah. Yeah, 306 pounds of rubber, and a heavy bomber required 1,825 pounds of rubber. And so, yeah. I mean, it just goes to show you, we are all kind of complaining about now, um, you know, about some certain states can only have, you know, so many people over. But, you know, looking over to my left here, my cabinet, I still have, which I'm super proud of. I have the remnants of a wartime ration stamp book. mmm And all these Thanksgiving, all of the Thanksgiving Day ingredients were being rationed, and so if a lot of the the housewives having foresight, they would start a few months out to ration their rations so that they would have extra ration stamps available to them, so that they can go out and get the things they needed in order to to procure their Thanksgiving dinner. And so imagine trying to put together Thanksgiving dinner on for ration stamps.
2: Gosh, I know, just a different time, man. you really, you got, you got me hung up when, I mean, I couldn't even imagine if this was today. Mm-hmm. Could you imagine the press conference in December, you know, or after, after the attack on Pearl <laughs> and we know we're at war in Germany and Italy declared war on us a few days later. You know there'd be somebody in that room saying, oh, Mr. President, now, what about the Thanksgiving thing again? Because you still haven't let us know. Like, you know, that would be today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like,
0: you know we're at war, it.
2: right? Yeah, yeah, we get, we get we're at war, but we need to finalize this Thanksgiving. Yeah, <laughs> you because, know? you know, like,
0: there'd be these, <laughs> editorialized things on twitter and there'd be these youtube videos from walmart and all them we don't know which day if we don't know when to th- celebrate thanksgiving how could we possibly know when to have black friday we can't have two black oh, fridays on strike. <laughs> <laughs> i didn't know honestly i did not know thanksgiving dated back that far I'll be oh, yeah it's funny you know I, I was trying to find more information on this and what i discovered was that basically two different websites made uh utilized a lot of the same material uh, and i found hold on um changes ration shortages i actually found a one article that explained all the different dates um how it actually started um because even back lincoln had it lincoln had it on a completely different day so i mean it went way back huh. um i don't think i saved that page i'd have to uh but yeah i mean it's it's crazy Thanksgiving during World War II. Oh imagine. I love how my phone searches synchronized with my computer searches. That's <laughs> the same page. But yeah, um, basically the the date had been changed. Like I think throughout history, like three to four different times. Because I know Lincoln had it on a certain date, and then it was moved, and then it was moved again. I want to say maybe, um. Abraham Lincoln was not the first president to urge the Americans to celebrate Thanksgiving. Washington, John Adams, John Madison all issued proclamation regarding the holiday. Gimble's department store in Philadelphia was the first major store to host a Thanksgiving Day parade. Yeah, but um, I can't find that the other article. But it's just, and the amount of effort I was also reading, um, they would, during this time of year, because obviously we had three of them, They would they would fill an entire Liberty ship with nothing but Thanksgiving accoutrements, turkeys, cranberry sauce, the all the ingredients for the mashed potatoes, everything. So it was vital, you know, all the discomforts in wartime. You know, the two times a year, the well, the Marine Corps as well, but the Army and the Marine Corps, the Allies themselves went whole hog, pardon the pun, on trying to make sure that the uh, guys on the front had something. To boost their morale, apparently it was Thanksgiving and obviously Christmas, but yeah, they they went all out as far as um, getting stuff over there.
2: Yeah, and you, you just mentioned something really interesting that puts this whole war in perspective. I mean, you think about what World War II is to, to everybody, to mm-hmm. every historian, to to, to, to the, the novice historian, to to us. I mean, look, we're we have podcasts about this war. Yep, we were only involved for three. Thanksgiving Mm -hmm. that really blows my mind what how, how much the world changed how much this country came together I mean I was just talking about it earlier today that you know we had uh whatever it was seven or eight aircraft carriers total to be able to be deployed all around planet earth in 1941 only four in the pacific yeah And we estimated we built about 150, 151 during the war. Like, let that sink in. (laughs) 150-some aircraft carriers were manufactured in a period of time that took less than four Thanksgivings.
0: And you kind of mentioned it earlier. You know, we're talking about how the day after we declared war, now we're worried about Thanksgiving. Imagine if you would, not that we're getting into an old episode of The Twilight Zone, but imagine if you would, if for some reason we got ourselves into a, another large scale debacle where we needed to rely on what American industries we have left manufacturing over here. Obviously, the steel industry is gone, so we won't be uh, manufacturing too many tanks over here. But let's just say for a second, could you imagine trying to go to the Apples, the Microsofts, the uh, Teslas of the world and say, hey, shut down your production, retool and start building these products of a different has nothing to do with what you do and is not going to generate you any revenue whatsoever well with the exception of government contracts do you think mm-hmm. they would happily do that in this day and age or do you think there'd be a huge you know oh you're overstepping your bounds as the United States government
2: honestly i think the way we would end up fighting the next war on a grander scale would prevent that from even being an option Mm -hmm. There would be no, you know, it would be a war fought not out of an attrition of materials like that, but of a technological war that would bring a swift devastation. Yeah, Um, there's, you know, with the stuff that mass production wouldn't even be a factor. And, you know, and that's just my personal opinion. And what that really does is, you know, say Japan had gotten a hold of the technology that we use for the atomic bombs. Yeah, they couldn't. They couldn't keep up. They couldn't feed their troops. They couldn't keep up with the demands of aircraft, their vehicles. You know, they couldn't mass produce like we did. But had they had the technology that we had to create atomic warfare, now it's it's even Steven, and yeah. that's kind of you know that should make that should make people pause today. Uh, the, the the little guy you picked on on the playground may have a secret weapon and they don't necessarily have to be able to produce like like we had to in world war ii to i mean and, and think of, i mean look at our look at our most recent war look how they brought us down on their level um you know not fighting us at night so much or not fighting us in the air they, they took us down they put us in, our, in their cities on their stomping ground and they made us fight by their rules mm-hmm. and our technology you know, throw it out the window yeah um so yeah it's an interesting outlook but yeah back to your point No, absolutely not i I don't i don't foresee company i mean we don't take anything serious enough (laughs) for long enough to appreciate you know that that this country how detrimental it possibly could have been i mean look at how many people kind of totally forgot about what happened on september 11th it really didn't take too long for that not to be front page news anymore and then
0: I mean, I know I don't, have just, to, I don't have to remind yeah. you or our audience, but the general everyday counterpart walking down the street—how many of us forgot that we're still at a war right now? It's been going on since nine eleven. So, I mean, there sure. you go. You know, and that's that's not a modern thing. I mean, how many yeah. people were
2: getting sick and tired of the air war in Europe? Yeah, you know, like, okay, oh, hey, yeah, you know, we're you know, you're losing thousands of guys sometimes a week. All right we got to figure something else out. And, you know, especially the eighth air force, you know, was, they were under the gun. Like, okay, we got to figure this out. And same thing over in Japan. Okay. we need something else to break this kind of, you know, very costly stalemate because yeah, the American public, we are fickle. It doesn't take us long to go. Okay. That's boring. Tired of that. Okay. What's next? What's the newest, best thing? You know, that's not, that's not so much a contemporary outlook for America. I think it's always been like that. It's part of our spirit. You
0: know? I found that information. Um, many people believe Abraham Lincoln made the day official in 1863, but he did not. In 1939, the last uh, Thursday happened to be also the last day of the month. And retailers were worried, blah, blah, blah. Nope, that wasn't the information I was looking for. But here's the other thing. I was wrong. I said one liberty ship. No. Throughout the U.S. involvement overseas, military officials did their best to provide traditional hot holiday meals for soldiers overseas in 1943 the american people sent two liberty ships fully stocked with thanksgiving supplies for their soldiers everything was included wow. turkeys trimming cranberry sauce and even various pies all sent throughout uh, the european and pacific theater so that would make sense one liberty ship went to europe the other one went to, uh, the, to the pacific all yeah. the way to the front lines those lucky enough to be stationed aboard navy vessels received excellent food all the time but Thanksgiving was particularly scrumptious for the servicemen. Despite the good intentions of the higher ranks, every man missed their families, especially during the holidays, but their soldiers had each other through the hardest times of their lives. However, no Thanksgiving be, could be quite compared to the ones held at home. Some men observed that the feeling for Thanksgiving um, was nothing like they could ever at home. Yeah.
2: There's no place like home.
0: Yeah, make that the truth. Um, Just to wrap up the Thanksgiving thing, and then we'll get into uh, the Pacific and uh, some uh, anniversaries. Here is a poem that an unidentified uh, soldier wrote during Thanksgiving. I can see everyone eating their dinner deluxe, whether it's chicken, turkey, or even ducks. The fellows over here won't whimper or moan. They'll look to the next one and hope to be home. Truly and honestly, from a way down deep, they want you to be happy and enjoy your feast. These holidays are reminders by one and all. Those happy days we can always recall. The ones in the future will be happier, I know, when we can all come back from defeating the foe. And so, I mean, it was just... I don't know. I just wow. couldn't... I could, You know, as bad as the... <laughs> The Pacific was hot, and obviously the battle of attrition was insane. But above that, poem is a is a picture we've all seen of the guy from Fifth Armor laying under his shelter half in a snowy foxhole, just biting into a turkey leg. And it's just, uh, uh, I just couldn't even imagine spending a Thanksgiving like that, or two or three, depending on how long you were over there.
2: Yeah. And you that, were. That's an awesome. Awful- Oh, man, you need to put that on our Facebook
0: page. was no. really cool. I'll I'll post that tonight. And yeah. you were kind of saying earlier that you never really think about it, three Thanksgivings. Well, that's if you're <laughs> an old salt in the Marine Corps. I mean, the boys over in Europe, they're lucky they spent one and a half, you know, one. And that's, I don't know, to me, that's the craziest thing about the guys in the Army and the Marine Corps – in the CBs anyone who served in a Pacific theater operations if you were one of the guys who for whatever reason survived or didn't get enough points or your position required you to be there from August 7th all the way up until the end of 40 and 45 that is just that's a long run man
2: yeah yeah very few very few did that for sure
0: And so, uh, you had a topic you wanted to get into a little bit tonight before we get to the, uh, interview that we have with, uh, Kevin.
2: Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, try to, try to time when we, uh, you know, when you post these episodes around what was kind of going on and in World War II history, you know, so people can kind of appreciate anniversaries. I think it's important, you know, it's, um, it's, it's important to commemorate certain things and, you know, and. It's always kind of, to me, I kind of like to think about anniversaries of things and, you know, that what time of year, the season, you know, try to put yourself in that perspective. And um, I don't exactly know what day of the month, and I'm sure you can find it, what day uh, Thanksgiving ended up in 1943, um, but I'm pretty sure it was not before uh, the 20th of November, 1943, when, of course, the 2nd uh, Marine Division went in to that. Goofy looking little island of pronounced batio or Batio or Tarawa, even though it's not such a thing as Tarawa, you know, the island, that's the name of the atoll, whatever it was called. It really goes down in history uh, as one of the most pivotal, not just a pivotal battle in the Pacific during World War II, but for the entire Marine Corps.
0: What day did really, they land?
2: Uh, what's that?
0: What day did they land?
2: Uh, the 20th of November.
0: Okay, Um, November nineteen forty-three. Thanksgiving fell on the twenty-fifth, so I mean it was. Oh, there you go. Yeah, so um, it was on everybody's oh, mind before they even made the landing. Had to be. You're you're five days out
2: from Thanksgiving, and so yeah, that that's perfect. So there you go. They they go in on the twentieth, not knowing what's going to happen. This is the first time that the Marines really encountered a hot landing, a hot beach. You know, and it's just the, the, the timing of the neap tide, you know, the super low tide of the year, the lowest tide of the year, actually, on the day that they landed, um, you know, LCVPs are getting hung up on coral reefs, hundreds, sometimes a thousand yards from the actual shoreline and being dumped off in the water, you know, wading in if the water was not already over their head, um, you know, only about 75 of these new Amtraks are available. Mm-hmm. Uh, to to actually get these guys to the beach. And so putting ourselves back in time, okay, yeah, what are these guys thinking about? I bet you they're like, man, I wonder what mom's cooking for Thanksgiving next week, you know? (laughs) Um, That's something that people typically probably don't think about. So, you know, we've all heard the story, 76 hours of, of, of hell, and, you know, they basically called the island secure on 1300 at on the on the 23rd of november so about three and a half days of fighting uh but very hard fighting on you know this nothing nothing island but it was essentially an unsinkable aircraft crater it had a uh, had a runway on it and it was a good stepping stone for us and before the island was even secure i think a hellcat had landed on it <laughs> before the you know the mop up was completely done but so yeah, think about that. And 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 from a, a personal standpoint, I remember being overseas. Just you know, you try to make a pact with with your battle buddies and the guys in your unit that you just you know you just don't want to get hit around Christmas.
0: I'm, you know? I I want to pause you here real quick because I'm while you're saying all this very important stuff. I'm just stuck in my tracks here. I just had a a thought that never occurred to me because I have never done this math. You know, you're just saying Saturday they landed on Saturday, November twentieth we know that the allies put a tremendous amount of importance, logistics and expedition into the delivering of their V-mail, right? They got the letters to the, the boys and the men as quick as they could to keep up morale. But with technology being what it was back then, I'm sure the mothers, the daughters, the girlfriends wrote letters early, perhaps weeks in advance to try to time this out. How many of those guys landed on that beach who never came back, whose last engagement with their home, the last letter they read was a Thanksgiving letter that arrived early? Absolutely. How many of those guys who died on that beach had a Thanksgiving letter in their haversack, in their helmet liner, in that breast pocket? That's just... I know, man. <laughs> I don't even know what you do with that.
2: It's a whole nother perspective. It's a whole nother perspective looking at that battle and, and thinking about what you know is on those boys' minds. Yeah. I mean, it's what's on all of our minds. It's the holidays. But of course, in the, the Central Pacific, you know, that's not, November is not fall or winter, you yeah, know, summertime. In, in the Central Pacific. In the Southern Hemisphere, it's the opposite. Yeah. So it was, as far as far uh, as far as I know, it was actually pretty warm that November uh, that they landed. And, um, but yeah, that's just one of those things. That's, that's our job. That's, that's our duty as, as, as people who study history is to, to get inside the, the, the time, what, you know, surround yourself with the stuff, not that the stuff that comes after that we know, you know, that that's the unknown for the guys when November 20th was the present. Um, so what was going on in their little world? You're right. You are absolutely right. How many guys had a Thanksgiving letter? Um, yeah, in their haversack, up in their in their hem, helmet liner, like you said. I mean, that you are absolutely right. I guarantee there was more than one. Yeah, <laughs> I'm pretty sure. Five days before Thanksgiving, you're absolutely right. So, yeah, I just thought that was uh, that was worth mentioning for our listeners, and maybe hopefully we encouraged our listeners to look, you know, look a little deeper, you know, go inside these battles and 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 try to think about. Like I said, that's why I think it's important to commemorate things on their anniversaries because then you kind of get a feel for you know, that kind of year and what's going on, you know, things haven't changed. People are Christmas shopping in late November. They always have been. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously you talked about it with, with what FDR went through. So yeah, I mean, it, that's the human experience. And,
0: and the thing um, about Christmas, at least in the European theater, Christmas was not only was it an important holiday, but for whatever reason, the planners, the logistics officers, or maybe just the, the, the brass down near the battlefields, for some reason they always used Christmas as the movable goalpost. It was always say, like, hey, mm-hmm. we're going to be done by Christmas this yeah. year. And then they moved <laughs> it and they're still there next year. And then, you know, the next year, oh, we're going to be done by Christmas this year. And and so it, Christmas was always hard to even fathom too, one, because of the weather, but two, the fact that they're always promised, oh, we'll be done before Christmas. And wasn't the case.
2: Yeah. And as, yeah, and that goes back to what I'm saying before is you know, you just you don't you know, holidays are sometimes hard for people who've lost family members and everything. You know, it's 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 a time of reflection and and, and, and deep thought sometimes and yeah, you didn't you didn't want to get it, you didn't want to buy the farm around Christmas. You didn't want to do that to your mom, you didn't want to do that to your family. And, you know, think about these guys on Tarwa with that Thanksgiving letter in their haversack that didn't come home, when do you think their mom got that telegram?
0: probably later. before christmas yeah well if they're lucky we yeah. we we all know yeah. how the grave registration well, went in the pacific <laughs> and, yeah. I, and i don't mean to laugh but yeah, yeah.
2: No, seriously i mean but i mean the newspaper said that island was secure you know i mean you know people are waiting yeah so but when do you break the news to them you know it probably was probably around christmas if not a little before not far after and that's tough that's tough
0: yeah, that battle was just it's just so intense. I mean the just I mean they had everything going against them. Like you said, the nape tide. Um, once they got on the beach, there was nowhere to go. They're stuck underneath the the pier for the longest time. Um it's just that was logistically the whole thing was just insane. I mean you're talking, you know, um, I'm looking at the numbers here. I'm trying to figure out which size Japanese which okay, yeah. One thousand six hundred and ninety-six killed, two thousand one hundred and one wounded. Um US Marine Corps, one thousand killed, two thousand one hundred and one wounded, US Navy, uh one escort carrier sank, six hundred and eighty seven killed. Um, and that's you know, that's not even including the the Japanese losses.
2: And that escort carrier, I believe, was the Liskum Bay.
0: Yep, sure was, um, was the yeah. USS Liskin Bay, which was an ACV, uh, CVE-56, was the second of the 50 uh, Casablanca-class escort carriers built to serve the United States Navy during World War II, launched on April of 1943. So that thing had a very short uh, shelf life yeah. on it.
2: And it, uh, it took one very famous sailor down with it, you know, the very first African-American there in the Navy Cross, Dory Miller, from his exploits at Pearl Harbor went down with the list convey.
0: Well, wow. yeah. Yeah. It's just I don't it's just I don't know. Times like this, I mean, and you know cuz you served um the holidays it's just in itself. I mean, it's just one more thing to make you think about home and I would assume a lot of times when you're over there the last thing you want to do is you know, torture yourself by thinking about things you can't have really any real control over. Yeah. Yeah. Man,
2: yeah, but you just can't help it sometimes. <laughs> you, know, you let your mind wander sometimes.
0: So anything I, uh, anything going on down at the uh, museum?
2: Yeah. So, you know, speaking of anniversaries and commemorations, uh, we're going to be celebrating on the 5th of December, you know, this uh, next coming Saturday. Uh, the Highland Lake Squadron is going to host a Pearl Harbor commemoration and salute to first responders program. So I think it's a neat way to tie in. Uh, we don't exactly have any Pearl Harbor, uh, you know, artifacts. Sure. You know, a direct tie to uh, Pearl Harbor. Uh, I'm going to bring uh, an artifact or two from my personal collection to display, but we don't really have anything in, in, in the collection. So I thought this is a great way to tie it in with first responders. I mean, think about Immediately after the attack, everybody was a first responder. Everybody had to help, you know, the bucket brigades mm-hmm. and helping with casualties and everything. So um, we're going to have some of the local fire departments and police and EMS. We're going to, you know, cook some uh, pork butts and sausage and some sides. And the VFW is going to make some desserts. And um, we're just going to, we've we, we got the SNJ airworthy again. So we'll be hopefully selling some rides in the, in the SNJ. And we're going to top the day off with, uh, we've got a projection screen coming in, and we're going to show Tora 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 in the hangar on a big projection screen.
0: That's cool. That's one of the things I enjoy doing. Um, It doesn't happen all the time, but a few of the Florida reenacting events, uh, there's a gentleman who has like a, I don't know, it's like a 15-foot utility trailer that's all white, and he just sets up a projector And after the public goes home, and we're all sitting around trying to figure out what we're going to do for four hours before we get to bed. After we eat or something, he'll he'll reject a you know movie, whether it's Fury or uh, I think the first time I saw um, the original version of um, Catch Twenty Two was on the side of that trailer, and it's kind oh, of it's interesting when you're sitting around watching those movies and then you look around and yes we're at a reenactment event but you know you're sitting you know an hour and a half into Fury or whatever movie and as you look around there's guys wearing those same uniforms watching the movie it's almost kind of like when you're watching band of brothers and they're all sitting there watching uh, Casablanca (laughs) and you know, they're all just sitting there in their uniforms. It's just, I don't know. It's just a little, sometimes it can be a little just, I don't know.
2: That's part of the experience. I mean, that's,
0: that's
2: that's important. That's important. I mean, if you, if you really try to keep it to period movies, Mm -hmm. uh, it really really takes it another step, uh, deeper, but, um, yeah, man, that's, I just, uh, you know, I, I appreciate you as a reenactor and, um, you know, like I said, that's why we got to do this and, and, and do it for these guys that, that didn't come home and, and the moms that, that, you know, got that telegram around Thanksgiving, Christmas. I mean, every, anytime it's tough, you know, war's tough, man. war, war, it's always been tough, but, uh, there's sometimes there's little nuances that, that can make it just a little bit tougher. So I think it's our duty to, to make sure that that's just, uh, And it just can't be
0: forgotten, you know. And it being Thanksgiving Day weekend, I just want to say I'm thankful for all the listeners who's been supporting this show for going on three years now. Um, So if you guys want a sticker, email us. They're free. Email us, info at uh, WTSPWorldWar2.com or mail call at WTSPWorldWar2.com or get our Facebook page and send us a message. Send me your name, address, and the color you want. That's right. If you have a black truck. Or you, if you're those type of guy who likes to do the black on black with your tinted windows, that's fine. If you have a red truck, and you want a red sticker. You have a green truck, you want a green sticker. Whatever. If you want a bright pink sticker so the thing can be seen miles away, just send us an email at info at wtspworldwar2 com and uh, we'll send out some stickers your way. I want to send you out some more, Jeff. I got to get some. I got some here yeah. that are cut. I got to have my daughter peel out. It's a. It's an operation. I I cut them with a the Cricut and then I give them to her to peel out and so. uh we want to get those sent out to everybody. And um, as always, if you haven't done so, head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com. Click on the Patreon link and sign up. It's a dollar a month. We're actually getting ready here. Um, I was hoping to get it done here shortly, but my computer that I pipe uh, the co-host of the What's in Your Head podcast in through Zoom has decided to go rogue, and it's at 22% updating. So I don't know. Um, I was hoping to have Jeff on tonight, but we'll see with time on that. I don't know how longer that's going to take. But as always, the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast is brought to you by our friends at At Computers. At Computers has been providing IT solutions for all Southwest Florida since 2004. So even if you don't live in Southwest Florida, give them a call. They they can log in your computer. Obviously, your internet needs to work. And you say, well, no, obviously. Well, I've had calls. People say, hey, my internet's down. Can you log on my computer take a look? No, I cannot. But if your internet's working and you want us to help out with your computer problems, give them a call at 239-283-1120. Um, If you need some help with two-form authentication, antivirus protection, most importantly, online backup. Back up all your data safe to the cloud in case your computer crashes, uh, something happens to your computer. I mean, hard drives nowadays, I think they're good for about three years at most. So make sure that important data is backed up. It's super cheap. It's $0.07 a gig per month. Give them a call two three nine two eight three eleven twenty. 239-283-1120. And as always, thank you guys for everything. And by the way, congratulations to our friend RJ Nevins and company. The walking point is just racking up the awards at all these independent film festivals. And now that people are starting to figure out way to have these events and still do the COVID, you know, restrictions and all that, they're starting to happen more regularly now and they're just cleaning up in the uh, awards department, right?
2: Yeah, man, it's, it's awesome. It was like film of the year. You got director of the year at the North Virginia Film Fest up in the Washington, D.C. area. I'm like, my gosh, it's
0: it's the little project it's that been could a was it has it yeah. been 2 years since they started filming?
2: Well, let's see we uh, that was um gosh yeah we wrapped um when was that march yeah cuz i saw a post from of 18 uh,
0: yeah cuz canine duke posted on yeah. his instagram page it was it's been 2 years ago since they first met you
2: yeah yeah that was Ah, gosh, it had to have been a little more than that, yeah, because I met them in the summer, yeah. like July of 18, or, uh, no, July of 17, I think. And then, yeah, I met him in 18. Uh, we started filming February and wrapped in the uh, the end of March, somewhere in there. Yep. And, yeah, has it been to I yeah. guess. Ah, man, it's all running together.
0: <laughs> yeah, the older you get, the quicker time goes by, and that's even more important why you need to, you know, focus on the holidays and all that stuff. It's just... Exactly. at the end of the day yeah. man Has
2: that been three thanksgivings ago now wow yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah three, three thanksgivings a day ago real real <laughs> quick you're yeah right man we're getting old you're talking about uh pulling something cool out of your collection and take over to the museum for this event what is one of your pri- i don't know if we've ever talked about this what is, what is currently because i know obviously these things change depending on when you find new cool things but what is currently your prized possession in your collection
2: Oh boy!
0: It uh, don't have to don't pre- be a prize. Maybe, maybe the one yeah, that but... that just flips your light switch right now when someone comes over to your house, like oh, and they see something they're like oh wait, you got to see this.
2: <laughs> okay, yeah, it's it's actually it's probably going to be the artifact that I mentioned. Um, it's uh, it's a it's about a one one hundredth scale scratch built model of the Arizona. It's it's a little over six feet long. Um, It's all completely custom, you know, scratch-built, and uh, actually came out of Malcolm Forbes' uh, toy boat collection. You know, Malcolm Forbes being the Forbes, uh, you know, from Forbes magazine, uh, apparently he was a big uh, antique toy boat collector, and his collection ranged from the 1880s um, to the 1940s, and they were very specific uh, you know, scratch built toy boats. This is not, you know, this is before you had the Revell Arizona kit and plastic. You yeah. Know? Right. Um, so, and it was never completed. Um, you know, there, there's some of the details a little bit more bare on one side of the ship than the other, but it was just something my grandfather had gotten a hold of and, and has since been passed down to me. And, uh, it's, I mean, for just being scratch built, just balsa wood and cardboard, you know, painted gray. It is really incredible. In fact, I'll, I'll send you some pictures if you want.
0: Yeah, I saw um, I saw one or two. But yeah, please, that's please that's near to me. Yeah, please send some photos. We can put up on the uh, website and the Facebook page.
2: Um, yeah, yeah, that's definitely different than the Arizona model you saw on social today.
0: Okay, what is the medium <laughs> that's, that's made one. out of? Is it wood? Is it plaster? Paris? Is it you know? What's it made from? The one you saw today? No, the one that you have in your personal collection. Okay. No, the one I have is it's, it's almost all balsa wood. Okay.
2: Um, yeah. And there's some kind of metal tubing that he used for the main guns, but everything else is, it's all wood. It's, I mean, it, it's incredible. So yeah, I'll, I'll take some pictures and I'll actually take a picture of the inside cause you can pull off the whole superstructure and look on the inside of the hull and see, got nice. a lot of the ribbing and the propeller spin and everything.
0: It's so, you know, a lot of cool stuff came out of the times back then even if it was from the 50s and 60s because people woodworking was an art back then not only was it a craft not as something you could do take you know as a living but it was a popular hobby back then and you know if you had the wood making skills and you had an interest it, a lot of times, you know it, it happened all the time whether it's a plane a, a navy vessel a train People took what doll houses were huge because dads would build them for their daughters, using their woodworking passions. And so you would see a lot of that cool stuff come out of back then. Nowadays, here's your store bought tank that I glued together with some glue and some put some water decals on. Here you go. <laughs> but
2: yeah. yeah,
0: but yeah, it's. Uh, have you seen um, before we wrap up? I want to give my Netflix uh, suggestion of the episode. Have you seen Liberator yet?
2: I, I haven't. I've had a few guys tell me about it, and I've heard nothing but good things, but I have not seen it.
0: I was watching the first episode. Mike Rowe does the opening monologue. Why he doesn't narrate the whole series, uh, you know, 12 episodes, I don't know. But he does the opening monologue. And I'm like watching it, and I'm like, this sounds awfully familiar. And then the light switch went off, and I realized I had the book in here that I just read a few months back. But it's very, very cool. Um, it's animated, but it's... Um, this may be a little before your time, Jeff. Do you remember the original Lord of the Rings from the 70s? Negative. Okay, the original Lord of the Rings, the key characters were drawing just like a Disney. But like some of the orcs and all that, they would film live action and then they would overlay them with animation so that they can get the proper movements. Well, this is done just kind of that way. It's There's a real cast and crew but obviously to save production money instead of having all these huge sound stages and all that they would animate the background stuff. And so sometimes you can see like how they had put black tape on their uniforms and to simulate the sketching, but basically what they did is they, they got real actors, put them on a sound stage, they would you know have the uniforms on and then they would put animation over top of them to make it look like they were a comic book almost. But it, it's okay. it's done very well. It's the The acting's great in it. The dialogue's awesome. Um, It's very cool because it's a different take on the European... Because it's about the uh, Thunderbirds travels through Italy and all the way around to when they go and find some of the first concentration camps. But it's very well done. The acting's great. Um, I was watching it one time. I was like, yeah, I think that that actor was using a Denix Thompson there because... It's the same one I have. It's the M nineteen twenty eight, but it doesn't have the cuts compensator on it. So I mean, there's little things you can tell when <laughs> when they're doing their props, and then they did the overlay, but it, it was very well done. So if you guys haven't checked that out, it's like I don't know, eight episodes long. It's very cool. Um, check it out. I think it was like trending third and on Netflix a while back. But I mean, it's been a while. Really? Well, I mean, I didn't get to see Greyhound because I was on Disney Plus. But it's been a while since we've had a a newer World War II movie or series come out. So definitely check that one out if you haven't seen Liberator yet. um, I think your kids will dig it. But hey, that's going to wrap it up for the intro of this episode. Um, We're going to go into an interview I did back with the World War II reenactor. He does German. Believe it or not, it's our second German interview. Um, And so we're going to get into that from the, I think it was Largo. No, Vero Beach Gun Show a few months back. Um, Interestingly enough, they got an event coming up in December, actually next weekend. I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to make it. Um, I got basically two events left in this World War II reenacting season. Uh, the one in Vero beach, there is one in Alabama. Um, I'm not sure if I'm gonna be able to make that one this year. Um, so I'm not counting that one. And then the one in Georgia, which is a two day tactical event. So, um, but yeah, my season's winding down here because well, just like everybody else listening, COVID knocked out your seasons, but anyhow, Jeff, thank you so much. And as always, um, where can people find you on the uh, social media?
2: Yeah, just uh, Jeff Kopsetta or at Jeff Kopsetta on Instagram. And, uh, of course, they can uh, go through our, our What's a Scuttlebutt uh, Facebook page as well. Just, uh, you know, ask us a question. and Yeah. yeah.
0: Please That's do that. Send fun, us an man. email.
2: everybody listens.
0: Yeah, please do that. Send us an email at mailcall at wtspworldwar2.com or info at WTSP even if it's not meant to be on air, if you have a suggestion, Hey, you guys have yet to talk about this. It may not be something that we're familiar with. We may may say, Hey, if you know a lot on it, are you interested in coming on the show and contributing or B we may look up and do some research on it and, and talk about it. But yeah, that too, if you're interested in coming on the show, you, you know, part of the reason we like to interview reenactors and all that is who knows best about this other than scholars, you know, to help share this history. So if there's a topic that you're interested in, you think maybe you can maintain a conversation for 30, 40 minutes, send us an email, info at 2com or hit us up on Facebook. You can hit me up on Instagram, and uh, we'll we'll figure something out. But uh, thank you guys so much, and here we go with Kevin. And we are back, and joining us now is Mr. Kevin Crane. Kevin, how are you doing tonight, sir?
1: Uh, tired, but I uh, enjoyed a good good week this,
0: this weekend. Had a fun time. Yeah, you know, that's one of the um, logistical mistakes I always make when I do these podcasts at an event is obviously I want to do it after at least the first day so we can talk about how the event went or things like that. But usually everybody's just so tired and a lot of times myself, I'm so tired that I'll leave an event and not even do a show because it's just. You know, you saw me out there earlier. I was sitting by the fire, and I was dozing off, and I ended up having to make a pot of coffee. Oh, I couldn't believe it. I
1: also wanted to tell you to get up and go lie on the cot if you were that
0: tired. Yeah, so I made a pot of coffee, and... Well, I didn't want to go to bed because at 42, my back is only good for about four hours on the ground. I read you. And I know if I went to bed at 8 o'clock, I'd be up at 3 in the morning. What now? Right. So I made a pot of coffee, and here we are, and we are good to go. So, Kevin, uh, just... One, one thing I like to do when I interview living history, living historians for the audience of this podcast who don't participate in this hobby is get a little background on people so that after a while people get a feel of how not living histori- historians are completely different in their daily lives. One guy may be a computer guy, one guy may be a doctor, one guy may be a police officer, one guy may, you know, who knows what. So what do you do in your daily life, Kevin? Uh,
1: I run a company called uh, Buccaneer Tiki Huts. I build and thatch um, thatch tiki huts of all shapes and sizes and I also do decks, bars, and tree houses.
0: Now when you do tiki huts, obviously most people know that tiki huts are usually made from palm fronds and things like that. Where do you harvest and where do you get your palm fronds from? Um,
1: Basically there's a town west of where I live that yields pretty good results (coughs) out in in, uh, Palm City. And but i've got them in jupiter i've got them in vero it all depends on a given job but you just need to drive you know out into the west where things are a little bit uh, less populated and they go along the sides of the roads or there's a lot of property of real estate property for sale that you can cut on and as long as you don't um, ignore any trespassing signs or jump any fences, the police have, in 20 years, I've never been hassled while I've been out cutting leaves.
0: And that's kind of a nice business model because that keeps your overhead down. It's Correct. When you're using supplies that, obviously, your 2x4s and things like that, you got to pay, you know, you've got to buy the lumber for that. But when you're doing tiki huts, and, you know, it's not like shingle and roof where you got to go out and buy the shingles and mark it up. So it keeps your margins, well, your margins higher, your overhead lower. What's the longevity of a normal natural palm frond? How long are they good for up on a roof?
1: Um, if the weather's reasonably good, I would say you'd get uh, five to six years, depending. Unless you're on the closer you are to the water, it, it, it's marginally lower because of the winds involved. But you know, your average residential tiki in some backyard, backyard, um, unless there's really serious severe weather, you should get a good five years out of it.
0: Speaking of severe weather, the wind's picking up a little bit, the microphone's picking up, but that's not a big deal. Now, are palm fronds, are they naturally um, mildew resistant? As far um, as and all that goes? Or do you just have enough of a rake? And it's out the repetition.
1: The you literally lay so many leaves over each other that it just creates a barrier that water can't get through. Because I, you know, I think about what you're saying about them being naturally water resistant, but as soon as the leaves have been up there for a couple of weeks, they die. Yeah. So it's, I would say it's, it's, uh, it's more or less due to the repetition of layers that are put on the hut. That has a great deal to do with it.
0: What got you involved in uh, reenacting?
1: Uh, let's see. I started collecting uh, military antiques when I was very young. Uh, probably about the age of 13, 14 years old. And this was in the late 70s. And uh, I think I was headed into freshman year of high school. And um, I dealt with a lot of um, Army, Navy surplus stores that back then, so you could you could find uh, original German memorabilia at these, at these places. So anyway, <coughs> the store owner where I did my shopping uh, there, for my military antiques, one day asked me if I'd ever heard of reenacting, and she gave me the phone number of um, who later turned out to be my um, my unit commander, and that's uh, George Krupa. And this would have been I went to my first I I, I w- you there was no repro- there were no reproductions back then, so you had to go full original pretty pretty much.
0: And with your height and your stature, that's probably a little easier for you. If you want to go ahead and open up that drink, you can that no. way you, you know oh, okay. you can. Uh, get your throat settled down, and your Coke's not getting hot in the Florida Florida heat, we're not too worried about it. I mean, I'm sitting here drinking as we go, and so we're good to go.
1: Anyway, uh, <coughs> just to wind this up, the, when I started to approach the reenacting, I already had almost all the stuff I needed because I was already a collector. I already had all the field gear and the uniforms or something, but I was collecting it as military antiques. Well, that suddenly became my reenacting gear for the next three years, and I did events, uh... Uh, I went to my first event uh, in February at a, um, a very famous place up north. Uh, most reenactors know of called Rockford. We were the first unit to go in there. That was February uh, 17th, 1977. Two years before wow. my 15th birthday.
0: That's insane. And, and and obviously, and Brian and I were just talking about part of the problem with reenacting nowadays. And is the barrier to entry, which is why so many reenactors are older is because of the, the financial involvement, whereas, you, like you're saying, back then, the stuff was you know, more readily available. The price points were lower, and with your size and stature, you could easily get into those uniforms. And so to get in this at 15, especially back then, that's, that's quite an achievement.
1: Well, like I said, I was lucky because I... I'd already, ha- in, as a military collector, even at that young age, I already had almost all my field gear, pieces of my uniform, helmets, everything that I needed, probably I would say about 80%, and I had to get. A, I had my unit commander help me get a couple extra things, I think I bought a pair of boots and some Y-straps and stuff, and I was good to go, so I think that I was lucky. To have been in the position I was in as a collector because it made my transition into the reenacting very quickly. It wasn't like I, I decided I wanted to get involved in it, and it took a while. Two months later, I went into the field, <laughs> three feet of snow in February.
0: Now, obviously, you were saying up north, and now you're just saying three feet of snow in February. What state were you What state? Did I you was in from?
1: Rockford, Illinois. In Illinois. We were, Rockford is a huge reenactment now, but back then, nobody had ever heard of it. We were the uh, first unit to go in there. We were representing uh, um, a private (coughs) infantryman in a hair (coughs) unit called uh, the 110th Panzer Regiment, and uh, which is their parent unit or their parent division is the 11th Panzer Division, and um, we were up against of all the uh, they're not even around anymore the Devil's Brigade. At that Rockford event. Hold on a
0: second. My mic cord is freaking out, and it's bleeding over what you're saying. I don't want to diminish your comments by poor audio quality. It almost sounds like wind, but there we go. And so you're saying Rockford? You know, at the time, you know nobody'd ever heard of it. And you know, and you're now saying, you know, it's.
1: It, I mean, I'm sure you you know Rockford right?
0: No, no, really I never I didn't get involved in reenacting until I moved to Florida. so I missed out even okay. when I lived in Ohio we were, I was just talking to Brian about this. I never experienced Connie that's still my bucket list. and so okay. um, I don't with the exception of the event I did in Alabama and Georgia, I don't know reenacting. It's
1: become a huge event. Yeah. I've never actually been to it, but we were the first unit to go in there back 40 odd years ago. and now they, they have the, the huge reenactment there every year. I don't think it's in the exact same place that we use though, the same uh, area.
0: Now when you do your German uh, um, impression, which is your only impression, what, um, what regiment or what group do you usually portray?
1: My primary uh, impression, um, before all the other ones, is a member of the 9th uh, uh, Hohenstaufen division, which is an SS division, a Waffen SS division which is not to be confused with the algmine SS. They were the ones who guarded the camp. We, The Waffen SS that I serve as a soldier in a unit of was an armed unit that fought alongside the regular soldiers in the army of most case, in most cases. So uh, <coughs> I portray a, um, a sergeant in the 9th Hohenstaufen division and um, Let's see, to give you a little bit better background, we were one of the divisions that fought at Arnhem with the British when they tried to do bridge too far, and (coughs) our division was um, praised by the British who were actually taken prisoner by our our, uh, units, that they were treated very reasonably and decently, and their wounded were attended to. So uh, the Waffen-SS, just like all branches of, of of it, has... Has got uh, blood stains on it, but not every single unit or every single soldier was involved in places like Malmedy or Wermant, or even uh, the Warsaw Uprising and what happened with Langer. So uh, uh, anyway, that's that's my primary is a, is a, a sharpier in the 9th Hohenstaufen Division, uh, circa nineteen fall of nineteen forty four. My second impression is that of a. Um, uh, soldier in the German Africa Corps, serving in South Africa in uh, North Africa. Excuse me. Yeah, because I
0: was going to ask you that because I noticed you do have some of the uh, North African um, HBT uniforms. Yeah, I'm wearing my my African uniforms right now. I've been wearing it all day. Yes, because it makes perfect sense down here in Florida.
1: So anyway, that's that's a soldier of uh, the Af- Corps under Rommel, and uh, it's a. Uh, if, if uh, growing up, we were always seeing movies about uh,
0: the the, uh, the armies
1: fighting in the desert, and chasing each other about, and just it's a very it's become a very romanticized part of the war, even though in ra- reality it was just as awful as anywhere else. Right. Sure. So uh, uh, anyway, my next impression after that is hare, uh, uh, which is regular German army. I serve as a sergeant in the 59th Fusilier Battalion. We are a bike regiment who, uh, oddly enough, also served uh, near the area where a bridge too far took place in that battle for Arnhem, um, a uh, uh, Tiger commander. Uh, <laughs> even though I don't have Where's a tank, tank. No, but I do have the impression the tanker's uniform, and uh, if I'm lucky enough sometime soon here when Rob brings his tanks out, I'll get to have my pictures taken with him, and I'll be able to justify the impression.
0: Yeah, that'd be a nice... Th- addition to your portfolio of photos. Now, we're here at the Vero Beach Gun Show, and uh, this weekend is just kind of a, a, a quick put-together Living historian event because, well, much like everybody else in the country, due to COVID, all our events were shut down, and plus it's middle of the summer which we try to do most of our stuff in the wintertime because of the heat and the environment. But I guess um, you guys have been doing events here for years, and the big one's coming up December 1st, where we actually will do a battle reenactment, and I guess in the past you guys are talking about You've had everything from people parachuting in here and just all kinds of... Politicians,
1: uh, here and huge, huge crowds. Hundreds and hundreds of people. Yeah, they. Uh, the trouble was, there at the same time that we used the park, there was a dog show being held here. <laughs> and for two years, the dog show people complained that the blanks from the battle were upsetting the dogs, which I respect as a dog owner. So they... Um,
0: we ended up for a year not being hooded. I do apologize. I got to get a new microphone cable. Um, as you're talking, the static is just going crazy. Do you need me to back up? No, it's. Just- oh, okay. This cable has a short in, and it's just going ape shit. Will you be able
1: to edit this out?
0: Yeah, I'll, I'll just. Uh-
1: the dead space, I mean.
0: Yeah. 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 This is, I can edit all this out. How am I doing this? Okay. you're, you're fine. You're perfect. Okay. Only problem we're having is this stupid microphone cable, which I got to replace. See, this is. My, I actually have a studio set up in my house, and uh, the, I only use this equipment when I do events, and I, it's been a while. And so, as you're saying, um, the t- the problem was is you guys are doing this the same week, and I'm a dog show and the dogs and rightfully so depending on the correct size dog of the tourner. Tourner. i know my
1: dog does not like gunfire so i appreciate what they were saying but they're the parks the ones who scheduled us here at this particular time that wasn't our idea so hey there's it's no fault anyway in any event they um that the, so then one year we couldn't really have any battle or any weapons demo and then the following year last year they changed the date on it so we were able to do all that again and now i think it will start to go back to what it used to be which is a much much larger event
0: as someone who's been doing living history and reenacting as long as you have you're probably um one of the few people on this show who's been doing it for that a length of time where do you see reenacting now and does it have and flow i mean for example i used to skateboard and i know it would go in 10 year cycles it'd gain popularity then it would die down gain popularity and die down um, where do you feel it's at now, and what are some of the changes for good and some of the changes for bad you've seen over the last, you know, 25, 30 years? 40 years. 40 years. Yeah, 70, 40 years. Yeah, I was born in 78. I'm 42, so, yeah, 40 years.
1: Yeah, because my yeah, – uh, uh, well, for one thing, the one thing that I'm I, I left the hobby for a great many years. I, I did it for three three and three and a half, four years, and then I left the hobby for a long time. And for years, I thought that I would – have to come back to, in order to get back into the hobby, I have to start recollecting German war mer- memorabilia again in gear, in order to furnish my impression. And that cost yeah. <laughs> of prices have skyrocketed. I, you just, it's not that easy anymore to even find the stuff like it used to be. Anyhow, I uh, ran across a company uh, in um, in K- uh, Columbia, Kentucky called uh, At The Front. Mm-hmm. And um realized that all the stuff that, that I needed could be purchased uh, as reproductions that were as good a quality, if not, sometimes they, you could even confuse them with the real thing. So the quality is some of the companies in Asia, here in the States, everywhere. It's it's frightening. You could fool somebody sometimes into thinking you're actually looking at the real thing. Anyhow, uh, as soon well, as I discover... Oh,
0: not to cut you off, and while we're on the subject of that, um, and I know you probably similar to I am. Um, this weekend we're doing a living history event, so I brought out my original haversacks, my original yes. M1 belts. When you're out in the field running around, rolling, getting dirty, and more, a lot of the guys, we don't like to, unless it's one of those pieces of equipment that are still a dime a dozen, but, um, for, but the majority of us, we don't um, appreciate or enjoy going out and doing tactical events or reenactments wearing original gear because it's just so hard on it that most of us wear our, re- our reproduction gear at that time. And so it's it's definitely nice now that you like you said, you have at the front World War Two Impressions, yeah. Hessian still-
1: antique, international military antique, Southwest Military Wholesale. There's a dozen companies in the United States that cater to our hobby. And they all via or they all try and come up with the, the closest quality item to the original as they possibly can. And it's quite a competition and it drives the price up and it is not a cheap thing to uh to have this to do be in the savvy
0: these days one of the things i recommend to people who are wanting to get into this is um if you have the ability like sometimes you can go onto these websites and they'll have used equipment for sale and and the price is lower and don't be afraid to buy used equipment because what's going to happen is you're going to buy that brand new equipment and someone's going to see a photo oh your uniform's too clean you need to weather and so by all means if you can find quality used equipment reproduction equipment it's already you know dirty what and you save 20 30 bucks by all means buy the used stuff if it fits you and it looks good on you you know save the money buy the used stuff because it's it's going to already have that wear and tear look to it. And so what are some of the downsides some of the negative changes you've seen in this hobby over the last few last 10 years or so?
1: Um, back when I first got into this hobby, I, you, you didn't see, at least in, in the unit I served in, you didn't see any reproductions. They weren't available. The companies weren't out there and stuff. I mean, you, you saw things, but a lot of times they were um, labeled a word we, we, we reenactors use. They call it FARB, which means it's, it has bears no relation to the actual item, and it's fake. It doesn't look anything like an original. And it can refer to anything, to a helmet, to a pair of boots, to a bow. It's just a universal word.
0: Yeah, I believe it's an ac- uh, a shortened version of far be it from me, but...
1: <laughs> uh, it has to do with the lack of... Actually, the, it's a German word, and it really? has to do with the lack of color. Huh. So, I, I, I don't... All I know is it's been used for years, even yeah. back when I first got in the hobby. Anyway, um... Uh,
0: Downside uh, changes you've seen?
1: Oh yeah, is that the cl- the 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 guys all argue and and and, and uh, argue over whose stuff is best in the reproduction world? That oh, I, I buy my stuff from one company and they're way better than the one you just mentioned, and um, their helmet looks farb or their uh, ammo pouches look farb, mm-hmm. and so there's a lot of. <laughs> <it's> <laughs>
0: Well, the internet's made all that worse because I find out, regardless if it's World War Two or if you join a parrot group because you got three parrots and you want to make sure you're doing it right, what happens is when you have a group of people who aren't in a, interacting um, in person, it just it it becomes less about helping people out and more about who knows the most. It's just a bunch of people trying to outdo one another in the knowledge of whatever that particular subject may be. Once again, whether it's parrots, uh, Boston Terriers, or World War II. And so a lot of times you go there with hopes and desires to learn something and to get constructive criticism, and it's just a bunch of people trying to prove who, who knows more about that particular topic than anybody else. And it just it becomes just a, a negative waste of time. Yeah,
1: I would say to anybody entering, a young person, especially entering the hobbies these days, is uh, <coughs> you, you're just going to have to develop your own ter- trial and error system when it comes to a lot of these companies, because you can jump on Facebook and you can say, oh, I want to I want to buy a, um, a set of uh, ammo pouches from the Smith company, and you'll get 10 different replies and arguments will start over the quality of what's on there and stuff. And in and the end, you're not getting any kind of a clearer picture of what you wanted to find out in the first place, which is, should I buy this item from this company as a quality? So sometimes you just got to kind of wade into it on your own. You buy. I, that's how I did it. I bought several things from some of the top companies, and I learned <clears throat> what their strong points were um, in their inventories uh, or, or, or their, their low points. And um, I let that act as my guide. And unfortunately, sometimes it can cost you a little yeah. bit of money. You know, I bought, a, there's one company I checked out by buying several uh, military caps from them. And unfortunately, they were so bad, I, I just had to eat the loss, and I literally gave the caps away. But yeah. I know now never to ever go to that company for that particular item again. So.
0: As somebody who's been doing German reenacting and living history as long as you have. Obviously, there's some stigma that comes along with it. Oh, heck yeah. What is some of the, just the incessant things that you just run into over and over again when it comes to, uh, when someone may meet you for the first time and find out what you do or see a photo of you somewhere in a uniform and seeing the Spastica on your your breast because that was the logo. What's some of the hardest parts about being a German reenactor, in general and has it changed has those problems become more now that we're 2020 and everybody is so sensitive to compare to what it was like in 1980 when you're doing it
1: no actually it's less ironically uh when i first started reenacting in in uh in early 77 the reenacting as a hobby was not was nowhere near as well known as it is now I mean, now it's universal. I have know reenactors reenactors all over the world, yeah. literally. Guys in Japan, guys in um, in India, and stuff like that. Anyhow, so back then, I, it happened to me. We would go and we would have an event where our, our unit would go to a museum and set up, a lot like we are this weekend at this gun show. And sometimes we might um, skirmish with the Americans and shoot off some blanks. So... Everybody would applaud the Americans for being there, but beyond that, since nobody had really... reenacting as a hobby had not been around that long then, people looked at us and just went, what the F are the Nazis doing here? Well, I mean, that got to
0: keep in mind, this is 1978, so you're right. only 30, you know, a handful right. of years outside the war and the people who were there, or the children of the people right. who were there.
1: But they didn't understand. They would see us at an event in the uniforms and have yeah. no concept of reenacting and they would immediately jump to the the yeah, political say, yeah. forthright and so forth like that. So anyway, nowadays I, I do a, a particularly harsh impression as a as a Waffen SS soldier. Um, it's subject to a lot of controversy because the SS were involved in a lot of atrocities, whether it was the Algemein SS in the camp or the Waffen-SS at Malmody, or Wurlamont, or the or- Warsaw Uprising. But I have never, in, in the last eight years that I've been in the hobby doing this, I've yet to have anybody come up and say anything negative to me. I always get compliments, um, and I tell people the reason I'm here is, uh, is to show people uh, the truth of what, what things looked like back then, uh, the uniforms, the vehicles. It's simply a combat art, a history impression, and that's it.
0: You may know the answer to this more than I do. Um, I know I don't know if it ever came to fruition, but I know there was talks three, three and a half, four years ago that over in Europe, they were trying to float the idea of hey, at reenacting, you guys can't have these swastikas on your uniforms and this, and that and the other thing. And there were, and you're le- that's and I and I get it. I get what that logo means to a lot of the people over there. But once again, you're, you're erasing history. And, and we're not out there doing living history events or reenactments to romanticize war, to make it seem like this big, great thing. No, we're on the contrary. We're doing it to celebrate the um, work and energy that the Allies and the Americans put into it. We're also tell, trying to tell the entire story for what it is, good, bad, the ugly. And more importantly, especially when it comes to some of the the atrocities in which you spoke of, if you don't teach those histories, people are going to forget it. And there used to be a saying back even when I was growing up, if you don't learn from history, you're bound to repeat it. That seems to be, well, let's just get rid of everything now. And one of the things I, with what's going on in our country now with the Civil War statues being torn down, look, not every monument is a celebration. You think that Germany looks at... Auschwitz Museum is a celebration? No. It's a stern reminder of what happens when things can go bad. Yes, some monuments are celebrations, but not a lot of them are not a celebration, it's a reminder. And and I and I always joke around and like when it comes to some of the civil war stuff that's being taken down. Look, if you truly believe that the particular person in that monument that you're wanting torn down is a horrible person, instead of turning on a statue, why not put up a plaque saying, Hey, Here's so and so, this guy was an asshole. Let's not do this again. And so, the idea of over there to have reenactments where now we're removing logos and badges from uniforms, where now they're just a generic boogeyman, there's no justice in history on that.
1: No, I agree with you. And I don't think it should be done. And I'm sorry that <coughs> certain things are offensive to certain people. And I'm not, I am not disrespecting that that, that can be the case. But, when it comes to l- trying to show history literally, which mm-hmm. is what we're here to do, especially, yes, we're supposed to show the difference between what you see in Hollywood, what comes out of Hollywood and what the Allied and Axis armies during World War II actually looked like. so we <coughs> we don't get to remove and pick and choose and um what we do or don't want on the uniforms. We are presenting the images as they were 75-odd years ago, and they should remain intact, not cherry-picked, of things people don't like to look at. I'm sorry.
0: And as Brian and I were talking before, there is an unspoken decorum. You're not going to have people walking around dressed up like Goebbels or Himmler or Hitler. No,
1: and I won't. Personally, I won't allow the swastika to be flown on anything. That I mean... It might be stamped on a box, but if somebody were to put up a German fl- a flag, the big red flag, or something, I'd be the first person to tell them to take it down, because, uh, re- regardless of what I said earlier, I do not want to directly offend anybody who comes to visit us. And flags like that are political. A lot of them that real Germans didn't fly battle flags in front of their uh, with the swastika on them in their little. Defenses like this, yeah, they would have used unit flags. So I don't see any reason to to let that to even go there. You know, we don't need to have flags, and they're going to cost. And I I feel that a big giant red swastika flag. It it could, it could be offensive to some people. There's no reason for us to have them here.
0: Yeah. So there's a difference from the crest on your uniform versus a correct propaganda. in your face. Yeah.
1: I don't want to have no, We have no desire to alienate he, people here. We're here to try and help educate them.
0: Absolutely, couldn't agree more. Um, what are some of the positive things you've seen as far as reenacting in the last couple of years? Are, are things bouncing back? Are they stabilizing? Are the, um, the, the people getting involved, do you find that they try to learn the history more? or you know, What are some of the positive things you've seen over the last couple of years?
1: I would say that the uh, people that I've met in reenacting, and this goes back all the way to when I started in the 70s until now to, to tonight here, are probably some of the finest people I meet in life. Um, I, they are, this is, I consider this my extended family, and they, it just so happens that the, the, some of the best people I've ever met happen to be reenactors. They're among my friends, they're the people that I, I actually hang out with even when we don't go to reenactments, and it's because it does, for some reason, it seems to attract, not every single time, but more or less a higher caliber person to it, to our ranks.
0: Now, obviously, there's always the um, exception that proves that rule, but I couldn't agree with you more. Um, it's funny. I was talking to my fiance tonight, and my battery, my cell phone was dying, and I was in my truck trying to charge it. And I was like, well, I have a, a wall charger. Let me go plug it up in the pavilion. She's like, well, aren't you afraid someone's going to steal your phone? I said, no, the public's gone. Right. I said, I've yet to meet a... Re- I said, everybody out here has thousands of dollars worth of equipment. Yeah. I said, I've been in charge of a, a gentleman's $5,000 browning automatic rifle. He just put it in my hands and I'm in charge. Of I said, I said, there's no one here that's going to feel the desire to steal my $700 phone. No. And, and because, and well, like you said, we're all, we're all great friends. If you've been to at least three events in the same state, you're going to know the people. Yes. And, um, the, the people who are assholes, they get drummed out. Yeah, they do quick. One mess up, you know, you'll hear a story that may have happened 10 years ago. Where one person stole someone's item. They were drummed out. And we're self-policing. We all have so much invested in this hobby that, you know, it's hard to have the amount of money invested in this hobby and be a dirt ball. It just don't go hand in hand because usually dirt balls are not only dirt balls in that time, but they're dirt balls in our daily life. And so usually they don't get to a position where they can afford the type of equipment to be here. Sure. And so I don't, you know, and when the public's here, Hey, Kevin, i got to use a restroom. Can you keep an eye on my camp? And everybody does that. You know, you got to walk away to, from your camp to go do something. The guy in the tent next to you will keep an eye on your stuff, and if somebody walks up to your stuff, he will treat it like it's his and talk to them and make sure no one walks up to your stuff. And it's, it's a very nice communal thing, and that's one of the best things about living history is, one, we get to sit around campfires and usually not be on our phones, and, two, we're all trustworthy, nice people out here.
1: Uh, one story I'd like to share with sure. you just real quick uh, to show you the bonds that, that we have among us. is I have a, um, a young uh, Jack Russell um, mix that I bring to mm-hmm. most of these events. She's here with us this weekend. And I went to an event in a place called uh, Markets of Marion two years ago. And River was with us, and there were some tanks there. And I, of course, had to leave her on, a, on an extended leash in camp while I went to the battlefield to perform in the event. Well, little known to me while I was gone when the tanks started firing their shells, uh, River um, b- got so freaked out and so scared that she broke her leash, uh, broke the rope of her leash and took off. And we're miles from, from hundreds of miles from home um, in a, in a, um, a fairgrounds fair venue. I'm in the field Doing a re- doing the battle reenactment, and have no idea this is going on, and a very good friend of mine just happened to see her take off at, at uh, out of the corner of his eye. So uh, anyway, I did while well, I like I said I was on the field, didn't know all this was going on. He took off after her, wound up chasing her halfway through all these fairgrounds, which are several acres, and finally she ran t- and got underneath the car to a, in a parking lot, and he was able to coax her out and bring her back to camp. So that by the time I returned back to camp after the battle reenactment, it didn't look like anything was wrong, and nobody wanted to tell me right away to upset me. So they yeah. sat down later, and the story, um, and the story came out, and it was wonderful because. Um, I couldn't be there, but somebody else who knew uh, my river, another member of my extended family, saw what was happening and acted immediately and saved the dog, or she, I might have never got her back. Yeah. So it's a wonderful story. I'm not going to say the guy's name, though. Sure.
0: <laughs> what is the piece of um, weaponry you use in your primary um, impressions?
1: Oh, there's two of them. I carry a Walther P38, a 9mm uh, semi-automatic pistol. And, and that's as an NCL, I carry that. And then my main weapon is a nine-millimeter MP40 um, uh, machine gun, machine pistol, as it's called. Um, it's commonly referred to as a Schmeiser, but that's a misnomer. He had nothing to do with the design of the gun. So if somebody ever, if you ever got to describe it, you call it a nine-millimeter MP40. It was a fully automatic. Uh, machine pistol with a 32-round magazine and an extending um, uh, steel stock that would extend so you could get uh, better accuracy.
0: What was the firing rate on that?
1: I couldn't tell you.
0: Shit ton? Yeah,
1: (laughs) yeah. Although I I, I have heard that that they were... I've never actually fired a real... uh, a real mp40 but i've been told if you fired off more than a six or seven round burst they had a tendency to jam sometimes yeah, but i don't know somebody might tell you different
0: is there anything else you would like to share with our audience before we wrap it up i want to thank you for your time and um, with the exception of the air that you guys didn't hear because i edited out with the uh, my microphone cable um, kev first and foremost thank you for uh, stepping up and acting as the second and i not want to say in charge but when we all showed up um, you know being here, meeting and greeting us, telling us where to set up, and just being an all-around great guy—I I greatly appreciate that. And um, you know, for guys like me who who are driving two and a half hours, and it's always great to see, you know, a familiar face when you're in a new location. And there's been times driven to drive in the Georgia. You're there. Uh, I mean, just about any event I go it's to, like you're a there. Family reunion. <laughs> it doesn't matter if it's an air show, it Doesn't matter if it's in a different state. You know, you always seem to be there, and I and I'm thankful for that, and I'm proud to call you a friend.
1: I'm proud to call you a friend, and I really have enjoyed uh, the food that you've shared me f- with me this weekend, and the coffee especially, because it's sure better than the store-bought stuff they're serving us here.
0: Well, for those you're not familiar with it, go to my YouTube channel over at d-410.com or Digital 410. And by the way, this episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast is brought to you by our friends at At Computers. At Computers has been providing IT solutions for all Southwest Florida since 2004. So even if you're not in Southwest Florida, they can help you remotely. Give them a call two three nine two eight three eleven twenty, 239-283-1120, and they can log in your computer remotely and help you out, as well as offer two form authentication online backups and antivirus. That's 239-283-1120. But as I was getting to, if you go on our YouTube channel, you'll see that I built my um, stovetop in an ammo crate so that I don't have to hide all my stuff under tarps during events. And I built that because one of the hardest parts about doing a two, three, four day event is after a while, you get tired of eating peanut butter and crackers and, and cold cuts. And so having the ability to pull out a hot plate and make hamburgers in the day, hot dogs, even steaks or pancakes, and hot coffee.
1: Or coffee. It I just was makes say. the
0: weekend that much more tolerable and actually enjoyable.
1: I agree with you there, hundred percent.
0: So, so it's my pleasure to help provide you food because obviously I'm stopping and buying hamburgers. I can't just buy one patty; I got to buy a whole box, and I'm sure not going to eat it, and I don't want it to get a waste. So it's my pleasure to help provide you with some warm. <laughs> In your tummy and some oh, nice I pr- coffee.
1: appreciate it. You've seen what my camp looks like, and yeah. it takes looking after all the
0: time. <laughs> yeah, Kevin has his tent set up, and he's the only one with uh, a fly or a canopy, if you will, and we are out in the hot sun, no shade, no trees. I think Ioma's got heat exhaustion earlier today, and everybody's basically, it doesn't matter, even the Vietnam guys are all sitting underneath his canopy and so um, it's just attending and I'm seeing our fires going to get out right now so we're going to wrap up this episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast thank you guys so much and head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com as always you can see all the photos of the reenactors involved in this episode as well as the Patreon link and all the links to our YouTube channel and all that good stuff please if you haven't done so yet sign up for Patreon it's a dollar a month they take a dollar of your bank account it helps you go support this podcast if you sign up for the $7.50 a month plan you get a free t-shirt after the second month thank you guys so much and we will talk to you all soon thank
1: Thank you Kevin thank you Don
0: this has been a digital 410 production <laughs>